Here in the United States, we are celebrating Thanksgiving this week. So we wanted to take a moment here at the top of the show to thank you, our listeners, for being early adopters of the show. Thanks especially to everyone who sent us an email, a question, comment, or even a puzzle answer. Dan especially likes those. And most of all, thanks to those of you who have shared this podcast with a friend. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. With the head of a rabbit and human ears, uh, some descriptions give it a skeleton-like body, the front arms of a badger, and the rear legs of a bear. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we share four simple tips that will make your science writing stand out. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 21. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. How's it going, Dan? It is fantastic, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And you know why I'm doing so great? Why is that? We are not alone. I'm, I'm looking around. I think we're alone. Well, you are incorrect because we have our good friend, David Schifrin, on the line. How's it going, David? Hey, guys. It's going great. Now, David is our friend and fellow podcaster. We met him because we started podcasts the same week back in July, I think. Um, but he oh, worked no, same day. The same July exact 10. day, yeah. I would say July 2015 was probably the largest leap forward the podcasting world has made. At least for the, the science community. <laughs> for the science community. We both shared real estate on the, the new hotness uh, natural sciences page on iTunes for a while, right? That's right. Now, David, your day job is Filament Life Science Communication. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So I am, like you guys, a scientist by training, and um, filament is kind of an outgrowth of some problems that I saw during my time in lab. Um, basically, what I do at filament is work with startup companies and some you know, small to mid-sized but more established companies as well on messaging, kind of taking all the science and all the data and all the error bars and turning it in. In turning it into something that's a little bit more accessible for different audiences. So, you know, for example, a lot of times you'll see um, a startup company going in front of a venture capital firm, and you may have some scientists or at least people with a scientific background in the room at the VC firm, but a lot of times they're, you know, more business oriented. And so um, what I do is I kind of come in and help talk about uh, the work that they're doing that's very technical and detailed, but um, again, kind of distill it down into something that makes sense and that you can get people to buy into and, you know, write you a check for a couple million dollars or buy your new fake knee or whatever it is. So would you say, David, that it doesn't matter how cool your research is, if you can't talk about it in a way that people can both understand and get excited about, it doesn't matter. It didn't, it didn't happen. That's exactly right. Uh, the data does not speak for itself. Getting the limbic system involved, um, we, we actually, surprisingly, as scientists, most of us do have emotions, and those are very useful things to to use. Does not compute. <laughs> that was my <laughs> robot voice. Okay, well, before we jump that far, we we do require that all uh, guests on the Hello PhD podcast drink some ethanol. So hopefully you have found something around the house that you can tell us about. Is there is there beer in Nashville, Tennessee? There is. There is a bit of beer. There is one or two kegs, and I got my hands on some of it. Fantastic. Uh, Tell us what you're drinking. 
I am drinking the Rompo Red Rye Ale from the brilliant Jackalow Brewery here in Nashville. We have to get a picture of this. You showed you showed the bottle on Skype while we were talking, and it looked quite frightening to me. Yeah. So so here's here's the deal with jackalope. Um, I'm 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 from Colorado, and we have a lot of jackalopes out there. They're real things. Uh, they're not mythical like some people would believe. Fast um, as fast can be, you'll never catch me. Is that the jackalope? Exactly right. Okay. Did yeah. you just think in America's funniest home videos? Remember first the fraggles. Now America's funniest home videos. No, that was um. What was that show? America's Funniest People. That's the one. Okay. That's the one. The great crossover episode. <laughs> yes. As is this. <laughs> okay, back to, Jack- back to Jack- Jackalope beer. Jackalope beer. Let's focus. Yeah, so so Jackalope um, was founded a few years ago by Bailey Spaulding, who actually talking about, you know, finding different careers and figuring out the path you want to take. Uh, she was a lawyer and just could never get into it. And so she, she bailed on that and opened a... a brewery um but she was a big fan of jackalopes growing up and so she named her brewery after them and decided that all of the beers that she produced would be named after some mythical creature so this gets back to the rompo which um i had no idea until as you pointed out i realized it's a terrifying looking can but according to according to the interwebs uh the the rompo is a mythological beast with the head of a rabbit and human ears uh some descriptions give it a skeleton-like body, the front arms of a badger, and the rear legs of a bear. Yeah, I feel like the uh, a rabbit with the ears of a man would be like a giraffe with the the neck of a chimpanzee or something. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> so how how's the Rompo Red taste over there? The beer is actually one of my favorites. Um, it's it's like an Irish red. Uh, and the thing that they do to give it a little bit of a Nashville spin is they throw some rye into it. So I'm not a big hoppy guy. This one's very smooth, a little bit of caramel. And unavailable in uh, our area of the world, we, we did look for some good Nashville beers and failed to find any. So Josh, tell tell David what we're drinking. Yeah, so I went to my favorite beer store, David, and in honor of you, I tried to find a nice Tennessee, a Nashville, Tennessee beer, They didn't have any, so I got the next best thing. I got some beer from Asheville, which is only one letter away from Nashville. Perfect. And what did you find? So we are drinking from Wicked Weed Brewery, which is one of my favorites in Asheville, the Freak of Nature Double IPA. And so, David, you are going to be glad you were in Nashville and not here drinking this beer with us if you're not a Hops fan because, man, this one will knock your socks off. Yeah, they they say in their description, it is just a vehicle for hops. I think the hops are almost precipitating out of this beer. <laughs> but I like this, Dan. Just drink the Super, Nathan. It's fine. <laughs> That's right. What do you think of this one, Dan? I really, I, I really like this. I this might be this my favorite one. one. With yeah. you in mind, I know you like a hoppy beer. And I had this one when I was down in Asheville and thought, you know who'd like this? My buddy, Dan. Yeah, I think this may be my favorite one so far. We're just saying something. We're at 21 episodes. This this is momentous for me. My goal before we're done with this podcast, not this one, but the podcast in general is to find a beer that's too hoppy for you. So yeah, let's talk about, uh, David, if you could help us out, you are quite an expert on writing and specifically science writing. And so we thought what would be helpful for our listeners, especially our grad student and postdoc listeners, ways you could help them out with their writing. Absolutely. I have conveniently enough a few Key tips that I 
spread around the scientific community, and uh, we definitely began to jump into those. Yeah, and and before we get started, it seems like a lot of your work is surrounding communicating science to non-technical audiences. And I wonder to myself, is that something that you commonly find grad students and postdocs and people uh, working actively in labs have to do? Or is that just for people who are starting companies? It's something that we all have to do in lab. Uh, the, the thing is, we spend so much time thinking about the technical stuff that we often forget that I would say maybe even the majority of our communication is is non-technical. Yeah, so so David, why don't you tell us what do you mean by non-technical writing? 98.6% of my communications are technical, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I'm actually going to flip that around on you, and rather than define non-technical writing, I'm going to define technical writing. I like um, it. I, I would say when you're talking about technical writing, you've got grants, you've got manuscripts. If you are a uh, total... Uh, masochist, you can you can write regulatory documents, excruciatingly painful but unnecessary thing, and uh, so I would say those three things are kind of the biggest pieces of technical writing. Other than writing for a journal or writing for a grant, or if you're a masochist, you're writing the legalese that goes into some kind of, of technical specification. What other writing am I doing in lab? Let's start with emails. Oh, I write lots and of emails. Lots and lots of emails. You're saying you can help um, me. You can help me write better emails. Potentially, that's fantastic. Go on. Other things you might be writing in the lab: podcast scripts. Okay, probably not, but those would be non-technical. Uh, a lot of the pitches and slide decks that we put together for conferences and departmental seminars, you could maybe make an argument that those are technical, but I would actually, I would say they're more on the non-technical side because um, you don't create a slide deck that looks exactly like a manuscript. You're going to have the same data in there, but you're going to present it very differently. So kind of the way, maybe one way to think about it would be when you're writing something or, or talking through, because I I often will lump uh, spoken content in, in with writing. A lot of the same principles apply. So when you're putting something together, think, does this read more like the way that I speak or does this read more like the way Hollywood portrays scientists as speaking? And if it's the former, it's probably non-technical writing. If it's the latter, then it's, it's more technical. And obviously it's a broad generalization, but that's, you know, one way to think about it. And I think it goes back to even what you were saying at the beginning that, that even your company is interested in, and that is helping scientists and helping those of us that have data portray our story and communicate the importance of what we're doing in words that people can really process, understand, and be interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm, I'm convinced. And, and actually, for grad students and postdocs listening, um, I think the example of giving a talk is a, a good one because the boring talks are the ones where you get a series of non-related experiments and graphs. The ones that keep you on the edge of your seat are the ones that lead you through uh, this this kind of rising and falling action of, we weren't sure about this, it could have been this or this, and then we did this experiment, and then we found out this was the answer. But that made us question the next thing. And and you you keep like following these waves of of action and curiosity and questions, and that takes you through the same set of experiments, but you actually care about what the results are. Sort of in the same way reading a story or, or watching a movie. Exactly. But so... So, David, this sounds great. So, 
What kind of tips do you have for for our listeners, for grad students and postdocs, for being better non-technical writers? There are four main tips, and uh, I have a total of 15, which I'll kind of mention at the end. Uh, I can get your hands on, on the rest of them, but for the sake of, uh, of time, there's, there's four, I think, that are really, really important. And, and I should also say that these are kind of structured for non-technical writing, but they mostly can be applied to technical writing as well. And so narrative and story, we've already talked about how you, you go through a talk or you create a manuscript that kind of follows that story arc. Um, and your point about, you know, we thought this and we wondered and we asked this question, we tested this. That's basically what in literature is known as the hero's journey. So the Luke Skywalker thing. Um, where, you know, somebody is kind of wandering around or presented with a problem and they have to fight through all these difficulties to reach a conclusion. That's basically what we do. So the, these tips for non-technical writing often can be applied. The first thing I kind of alluded to earlier, and that's focus. Um, so the, the biggest thing I think that anybody can do when presenting science to non-technical audiences and even technical audiences is to focus on what we call an audience of one. And an audience of one is exactly what it sounds like. Imagine yourself in a room with one single person. And it's a little bit of a weird exercise, but it's what marketers and advertisers and business do all the time. And it's why advertising and marketing works, because they know exactly who they're trying to target. And, how, and then once they know that, they can get people to respond. So the way to think about this is, when you're defining your audience of one, you need to know that person's psychographics and demographics. Okay, let me stop you right so, there. Let me stop you right there. I have, <laughs> I have had a conversation with one person about science, but I've also had a conversation with a room full of people from different backgrounds. How do I, how do I tailor this, this talk or this paper to one person and expect everybody to care? Yeah, it's not an easy thing. And one of the issues with the audience of one is if you do have, you know, if you've got a group of scientists and a couple of lawyers in that room, uh, that is that is a challenge. But I think you're you're actually in danger of causing more problems if you try to be all things to all people and you end up watering down your message. So what I would say is pick, pick one person who's going to be there. So if you're at a conference... Um, Given a presentation, in my case, it would have been in an Acton uh, subsection. You know, know that the vast majority of people there are going to understand what the plus end or the minus end of an Acton filament is. They're going to understand what those um, those monomers are doing and how they assemble. And so you can tailor your message to that. Now, if I'm taking that same message to a middle school science class, um, you know, you're going to have a teacher who's going to have better understanding than the kids, but they're not going to understand uh, the ATP hydrolysis process. And so you're going to have to present things a little bit differently. So That makes sense. And it it seems like the the step even before this step is to figure out what is it I want to get out of this interaction. So if I'm talking to the PI, what do I want from the PI? Do I want to convince them that this line of experiments is best? Or if I'm giving a talk at another university, do I want to, uh, you know, impress the faculty search committee and let them know that I'm the right person for this job? And and thinking about what it is you want to get out of this interaction uh, probably helps you decide who that audience should be, right? 
Right. And yeah, so sometimes you'll be assigned an audience. Other times you can kind of define it yourself. Uh, but you do have to have a clear understanding. And, and, and those, you make a really good point there because those two kind of play off of each other. Uh, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg, but you need to know what, you, as you said, what you're trying to get out of it. Um, but you also need to know what your audience needs to get out of it. And in order to understand what their problems are that you can solve, you have to know who they are. So in the example you used, if you're going to another university giving a talk and you're trying to impress them and offer you the job, the problem that they have that you're trying to solve is to say, look, you, you need somebody who does this work on C. elegans uh, with this background, this publication record, and this experience and this outlook for the future. That's their problem because that department is looking to fill that spot. Um, so there's definitely kind of an interplay between those two two sides of it. That makes really sense. Point. That's good. So is an is an end result that you're you're going for in identifying your audience of one and really trying to speak to that pretend person is to an effect of that is making your your presentation much more conversational than technical. Absolutely, it's going to be much more streamlined. Well, I guess it depends on how your conversation is. In my case, if I'm <laughs> focusing on an audience of one, it's going to be a lot better than my conversation. But the idea is you don't want to ramble uh, and you don't want to try to present every piece of data. So, you know, there are going to be some gaps. There are going to be some people in that room and some problems kind of on either edge of the, the curve that you're not going to hit. But I think the biggest thing is to not worry about that and and know, know what you're trying to do. And we, we sort of instinctively, especially as scientists, we want everybody to know how much we know and how much work we've put in. But that only confuses and distracts people. And so it's much better, it's very difficult, but it's much better to get in the mindset that, okay, I'm going to make one point to one person and just be okay with the fact that some things are going to be left out. So that that seems to to maybe be be another point. So define an audience of one, but then it seems like you're also saying focus in on one point that you want to get across. Absolutely. Every piece of content should be focused on one point. Now, within that, of course, there's going to be subsections. Um, but I, I you know, think of it like a pyramid where you have everything ultimately reaching that, that single main point. And so you want to be solving one problem, again, like we've talked about, and that problem may be figuring out how um, the ligand interacts with the receptor through, you know, you're doing x-ray crystallography, uh, or it could be uh, the problem of, of the white rhinoceros going extinct. But whatever it is, you don't want to necessarily, no, sorry, not necessarily, you don't want to be talking about the fact that there's only a handful of white rhin- rhinoceros Rhinoceri? Rhinoceroses. That'll be a word of the week soon, don't worry. <laughs> Rhinos. Right. <laughs> Rhinos. That <laughs> there's only five of those animals left. And also whatever species of whale is also in trouble. No, just just focus on the rhinos. Yeah, I I I think this bears repeating. You don't need to tell everybody everything you possibly know about. You need to tell them the things that they need to know. I think this is this is good editing. This is um you know, brevity is the soul of wit, and no one's going to be impressed if you include every fact and every experiment you did. What they want to know is the the pieces that fit into the story you're trying to tell. 
right. Not only will people not be impressed if you include everything, but they will hate you. <laughs> I have been to those talks Absolutely. and I hated those people. So then would you say identifying that main point that you want to get across actually is a useful exercise that you should do up front as you're preparing that writing or that talk and sort of that one main point can act as a filter through which you decide what to include in your writing or in your presentation. Absolutely. Every, every word you write, you should take a step back after you've written it and say, does this, does this get us closer to that main point? And, and, and if it be, be brutal about it because it's not easy to take out. You know, if you've crafted this beautiful sentence or you think that this paragraph is wonderful, it is the hardest thing in the world to say, I'm not going to let people see that. But you really have to take it out. I mean, I know yeah, in, it, in editing this podcast week after week, the volumes of wisdom and prose yeah, that Daniel and I, that are on the cutting room floor, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, could, could fill a book. What the listeners miss out on week after week due to uh, editing. Uh, People are thinking they don't cut anything, even if they should. <laughs> you guys edit this thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's so, called bonus content. That's right. That's <laughs> right. 1995. Uh, They're praying for a cutting room floor. <laughs> uh, if you have ideas for what you'd like us to cut out of the podcast. Uh, all right. So, so David, we're, we're defining our audience. We're also defining our focus. Uh, what do you have for us next? Cut everything ruthlessly. Be brutal in your editing. So my favorite example of this was a time when I was convinced I was presenting all the right information, and I handed in. Uh, so grad students may not, grad students today may not realize, but um, years ago, way back in the day when science was still young and, and we, we uh, wrote by quill pens, uh, we actually would do things on this stuff called paper. And so I would actually hand a written hard copy of a document to my PI, and he would take a red pen. Did you write a One, dinosaur I, to work that day? I, I wrote a rhinoceros. You mean, you, mean rhinoceros. A, you mean a dino, Dan. A dino. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so the point that this all kind of ties back to, I mean, there is editing, which which in the case of the manuscripts, you know, my boss would hand that back in one time. He literally had just put a big red X through an entire page. It was gone. You know, but in the end, you have a formatted document that still is very, very dense. And there's just a lot of ink on the page, um, even though it's very concise. So the first part of that is edit ruthlessly so that you're concise. But the second part of that is, in the case of digital content, use white space. And so white, white space is a design tool that it's also sometimes called negative space, uh, but it gives your audience a chance to breathe. So, you know, think about a manuscript or a, a published paper. Think about a cell paper because you have, you know, full page, seven full page figures and then a bunch of text, and it's really hard to keep track of where you are. But a good blog post, for example, will have gaps between the paragraphs. It's going to have bright images. It's going to have a lot of space um, in the sidebar. And, and, to your point, uh, this is exactly the idea behind minimalism and organizing your space. And so, yeah, I, I wrote about this in a blog post about white space. Um, you know, this is why, for example, productivity experts start by telling you to get rid of all the junk and organize your desk. And I did this recently, and it's amazing. They say that boosts your productivity, and it's real. Get stuff out of the way so that you have space to breathe. All right, so David, so that's three, three really good tips. Um, what's the last one you were going to mention? 
So the last one uh, we, we touched on a little bit towards the beginning, and that's storytelling, uh, narrative. And, you know, this is really simple. It's the stuff we're all taught in elementary school, beginning, middle, and end. Um, and, and so, again, you know, I like to think about the hero's journey and kind of the challenges that you, the scientist, face as you're going through whatever, whatever this problem is, or maybe it's the, the challenges that your audience of one faces, and you kind of walk them through to a resolution. But storytelling is really, really important because, again, there's an emotional component. And, you know, I know we all want to believe that we're data-driven machines, but... Now, what, yeah. do you, what do you mean by a story? I'm, I'm thinking, like, once upon a time, there was a young kinase. <laughs> you're, not, you know, you're not far off, actually. So, so here's an example that I will give you. So that I'll read two paragraphs. Um, the first one is listed directly from cancer.gov in a description of esophageal cancer. So here's... Great reading. It was great, absolutely. Um, Okay, so esophageal cancer is a disease in which malignant, parentheses, cancer cells form in the tissues of the esophagus. The esophagus is a muscular tube that moves food and liquid from the throat to the stomach. And everybody's now asleep. So so make, so make that better. Okay. Ken thought he had a stomach virus, maybe something picked up from his three-year-old son. Vomiting was pretty unusual for him, but it wasn't crazy. His wife made him soup, told him to cancel his studio sessions. A few days later, he started having discomfort swallowing his food. Sixteen months later, he was dead. A vicious, malignant mass in his esophagus had killed him. Cancer. He was 32 years old. I think I just cried a little bit. That was terrible. I mean, so the reaction that I'm feeling right now is, is extremely intense, Uh much more than I felt about the first one, obviously. You could take that and put that in front of a group of scientists or physicians. Now, they're not going to respond the exact same way that you or I might, simply because, you know, if you're an oncologist, you're seeing this stuff, you're living those stories. But it's a great way to connect with your audience to begin with. And then from there, maybe you're in front of a classroom of, of young students. And then you can go in and talk about anatomy and how the esophagus works. Or you can talk about how malignant cancer cells work. Or you can take that same opening and then walk through your model where you're using uh, cancer cells and culture in a lab and present it to your, uh, your, your conference audience. So obviously what I just presented there are individual paragraph stories, but you can take those same principles and kind of weave them throughout whatever content you're writing. So it seems like you're talking about finding the hook, finding what is it that's going to connect the main thing I'm trying to get across with as many people in the audience as possible to catch their attention and make them care. Yeah. The way it's been described by um, a data analytics company that I, that I, I kind of keep tabs on, they have a white paper about, it's called data storytelling and they have a quote in there and it says data tells you what's happening and stories tell you why. And so that's exactly what you're talking about there. It gives you the context and it gives you the hook for all that data. That's extremely helpful. So Grad students, postdocs, all scientists, as you are doing this type of writing or presenting, um, keep these four things in mind. Now, you said that there are 15 total tips. How can they learn more? I uh, have a website called Science Writing Radio, and uh, that's where I host Science Writing Radio podcast. And I've got a 15-point science writing checklist that uh, your listeners can download to kind of get the whole rundown. And to do that, head over to sciencewritingradio.com 
slash HelloPhD. Click a button, put in a couple of pieces of information, and get immediate access to the uh, the, the, the 15-point science writing checklist. Uh, check out my blog because I've got a blog post for each of these topics and kind of walk through some of the stuff that we've talked about. Uh, each of the four points that we've talked about are included there and then a bunch of other things that kind of fall under those different points that we talked about tonight. And also be sure to check out David's science writing podcast, which is Science Writing Radio. You can find it anywhere that you can find Hello PhD. It's on iTunes. We know that because that's how we found each other. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for these tips. I know I learned a lot. It's going to be helpful for our listeners. But you, sir, are not off the hook yet. We are going to subject you to Daniel's word of the week. The etymology puzzle. Are you ready, sir? My son is hovering over the hang-up button. (laughs) Oh, we just got cut out. I went into a tunnel. Oh. <laughs> what you're breaking? Nope. We will call you back. Don't worry. Okay, so last week's clue was need to get somewhere fast? Use these spiral wings to fly you there. And and do you have any guesses? Because Josh does not. I mean I actually I clearly know it this week, but since David's our guest, I'm gonna let him uh, go for no it. Idea. Yeah, so I I, I uh, focused in on the, the spiral aspect and Having a little bit of a microbiology background, I immediately thought spirochetes. I don't even know what those are, but it has to be that. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> it, like is that, n- yes. it is not spirochetes. So I'm actually looking, this is a type of machine. It is a flying machine. Yeah, so so it's a helicopter. It is a helicopter. You right. got, did, you, did you know that, Josh? Um, of course. You had no idea. Helicopter uh, from Greek, helix, uh, which turns into helicos, which is spiral, and I don't know if you if you listened a few weeks ago, but we um, covered P T E R O N teron, which means wing. Yes, spiral wing. So we we talked about lepidoptera, which are fish scale wing, the butterfly and the moth. So this is spiral wing, helicos, teron. And this one uh, came up because people were arguing about whether you should say apoptosis or apoptosis. The P T sound in Greek, you're not supposed to pronounce the P. And somebody brought up helicopter. PT, you should not say the P, you shouldn't say the P at all, so it should be helicopter. Helicopter. I'm going to start pronouncing it the wrong way and see if people notice. Tomato, tomato. Oh, it's Greek, so <laughs> I'm just not saying the P. Apoptosis, apoptosis, get a life. <laughs> no, people argue, people will fight to the death. Well, that was that was interesting, Dan, so what do you have for next week? Okay, next one is is a holiday-themed clue. Thanksgiving is next week. Here's the clue. Before there was a turducken... Carl Linnaeus named this special bird a guinea fowl chicken peacock. And I want the genus and species of this creature that he named. Again, before the turducken, Carl Linnaeus named this special bird a guinea fowl chicken peacock. So give me the genus and the species if you want to win. I'll choose the winner randomly from all the correct answers and you will get an Amazon gift card. It's not a jackalope. Oh, it could be a jackalope. And then we had a win. Who was our winner last week? We were going to start announcing this. Oh, that's this right. Show. Yeah, our our winner last week was Megan from Rice University. Megan, congratulations! You're smarter than we are, we or at least than I am. Well, this has been a great show, as usual, Daniel. Thank you, and a special thanks to David. Thanks for taking time to jump on here with us. You bet, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. I um, I wish your podcast had existed when I was. Fumbling my way through grad school. Well, so do we. So keep up the so good work. <laughs> and and we will look for a good Tennessee beer in the future. 
we just can't get it right now. We will. And be sure to check out more of David on Science Writing Radio. If you have a question or topic for a future show, you can email us podcast at hellophd.com or send us a tweet at hellophd. We'll be back at you next week. See you then.